Coming up, do brain training games actually improve mental skills? Well, I have to say that up until this point, the evidence has been rather weak. And how quantum encryption could keep our secrets safe over the internet. Cryptography is really a very important technology. No one wants to have their identity or their uh, credit card numbers stolen. You're listening to the 300th episode of The Nature Podcast. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Noah Baker. From treating cancer to absorbing light in solar cells, metal nanoparticles have a huge range of potential applications. The gold standard in nanoparticle research is, well, gold. It's stable, easy to handle, and has all kinds of interesting properties. But there's a new kid on the block, silver. It may sound like second prize, but a nanoparticle made up of 44 silver atoms could kick gold off the top spot. This week in Nature, researchers from the University of Toledo in Ohio present a new method for creating silver 44, as they call it. I asked researcher Terry Bajoni why we haven't been using silver in nanoparticle research thus far. Silver nanoparticles are notoriously unstable. So, for instance, uh, with some other nanoparticles that we make, if we set it on the bench and leave the experiment till the next day, well, we'll come back to a different set of nanoparticles. They will have changed overnight into something different. And so, obviously, that creates many problems for uh, the sorts of experiments that we might want to do, particularly in uh, biological systems. Why would we want to be using silver instead of gold? Well, the most obvious uh, point for most people would be the cost. Right now, I believe gold is somewhere around $1,200 per ounce, and silver is a little under 30 So what is it that you've achieved with silver here? You've managed to make stable silver nanoparticles. How? I have to give uh, a lot of credit to nature for that, uh, Mother Nature, that is. These particular uh, particles, they just form by themselves. Uh, This combination of uh, silver atoms and the organic ligands we use, they just tend to come together to uh, form this 44-atom cluster all by themselves. And not only that, but they just don't want to form anything but silver 44. So there's something especially stable about these particles, making them outcompete any other structure. We've managed to elucidate a lot of what's going on here by solving the crystal structure and looking at the interior of this nanoparticle. You know, it's it's a rather impressive uh, core. It begins with an icosahedron, so that's a, a, a 20-sided polyhedron containing 12 atoms, and then followed by a dodecahedron, so that contains 20 atoms with 12 sides. And then the entire shape of the particle is octahedral, and inside it, if you, if you look within the uh, dodecahedron, you can define a cube. So the symmetry is rather remarkable. Why has no one else found this particle so far if it seems to just form on its own? Uh, so other people have found this particle, but up until this point, no one has been able to make it in a stable form. We've solved this stability problem so well that we could form truly arbitrary amounts of, of this material. So we demonstrated making a quarter pound But in principle, we could make kilograms, if not more. That sounds quite unprecedented in the world of chemical synthesis. People usually talk about micrograms of a product, not kilograms. Absolutely. It's quite typical that you might make perhaps 100 milligrams in in a very nice nanoparticle synthesis. So we're we're at least a thousand times greater scale than that. Is it a complicated process you have to go through? 
It's actually a rather simple process, which is part of the elegance of it. Uh, a high school student could even do this chemistry. It, it starts out with very benign solvents, water and an alcohol, and very simple and benign reagents, uh, silver nitrate, which is probably in every high school chemistry lab, uh, plus a reducing agent, and then our ligands. So it's quite straightforward. The nice thing about our, our synthesis, if it can be done by a high school student, it could be done by a biochemist who has never made a nanoparticle before. And so we could start to get these particles into the hands of people who don't traditionally work with nanoparticles. One exciting area of gold nanoparticle research is the potential to use them to kill cancer cells. Could your silver 44 particles do the same? Once you put uh, a gold nanoparticle in the uh, cancer cell, it, it kills that cell, but only that cell. And there's a great advantage in fighting cancer to killing the neighboring cells as well, simply because you don't want to leave any behind. Silver has been shown to also kill the neighboring cells, so we, we see that as a, a tremendous advantage for silver. Does this particle spell the end for gold research, then? <laughs> well, I think gold is, is probably pretty safe in nanoparticle research. So many people have a tremendous experience with it, and it, it really is quite easy to use. And so this particle could... Uh, displace gold in, in certain applications, but I expect there would be many applications where uh, gold is still superior. That was Terry Bajoni. Keeping a secret isn't easy. Think of the race between the code writers and the code breakers in the Second World War. Today, this race takes place over the optic fibre networks we use to make phone calls and send emails. Since the 1980s, scientists have suggested that the key to fully secure communication lies in quantum physics. It's called quantum key distribution, and it's a way of encrypting the photons that transmit the message. The laws of quantum mechanics mean that if anyone other than the intended receiver takes a peek, the meaning of the message is lost, because by measuring a quantum system, you disrupt it. Now, thanks to research led by Andrew Shields at the University of Cambridge, the quantum internet, as it's called, may soon be available to all of us. Earlier this week, Jeff Marsh spoke to Andrew on an unencrypted Skype line, so we listened in. I think we can all say that there's a good motivation for um, encrypting communication on optical fibre. No one wants to have their identity or their uh, credit card numbers stolen from a communication network. And at the same time, if we um, connect up to some service, we want to be sure that we know who we're talking to and the data that we receive can be believed. Cryptography is really a very important technology these days. What is quantum key distribution? Quantum key distribution is a way of distributing secret digital keys on an optical fiber network. And uh, the interesting thing about that technique is that it'll be secure from any future advance that happens in mathematics or computing or engineering. If anyone tries to intercept encoded single photons that are sent along an optical fiber, that inevitably changes their encoding in some way. And that change can be sensed by the legitimate users of the communication system and alerts them to the fact that there's someone trying to tap into the optical fiber. It'll be secure as long as the laws of physics remain the same. And this isn't just pie in the sky, this technology. It's been shown to work, hasn't it? 
quantum key distribution until now has been a point-to-point -point technology and it allows us to distribute secret digital keys from A to B or from Alice to Bob as the protagonists are normally called. And also in the past we've shown that we can build a nodal network which is a, a mesh of these secure links and provided the nodes can also be put in a secure location then that can allow us to distribute keys over longer distances. Now what we've done here, which is quite different, is that we've built a point-to-multipoint type link and that allows us to connect multiple users up to one node within this network. And uh, the reason for that is because the more complex parts of the system are at the receiving end, especially the single photon detector is quite a complex and expensive component. So we'd like to make that the common end of the fiber and have the simple components, the photon generators at the other end of the fiber. So we have multiple Alice's sending the photons to one uh, bob, to one receiver. So is that the reason then that none of our listeners have got this kind of cyber security technology in their bedrooms? It's just down to the, the cost of the old network model. Yes. What our quantum access network will allow us to do is to connect multiple senders up to one single receiver to share a single photon detector. So it'll reduce the cost of the network in that way. And you've called this new configuration a quantum access network? Really, it's analogous to the access networks that are used in conventional telecoms. In conventional telecoms, if you have a fiber optic connection, Typically, you don't have your own private fiber optic cable, which goes from your home or your business to the network, but rather you share a fiber with a, a number of other people, and that's called an access network. And it's that same component that we're using to make a quantum access network. You say you can scale this up to 64 users. Yeah, so we demonstrate in the paper that it's possible to connect 64 senders up to a single detector and have a secure key distribution for that number of senders. But the idea then is that this quantum network could then be incorporated into our current telecommunication systems. That's right, yes. So we use a passive optical splitter, which allows us to combine the signals from different users onto a single fiber. That's then detected in a single detector. And in fact, passive optical splitters are a very common component in current telecom networks. They're used in particular for the so-called last mile connection, the connection from the telecom network switching point out to the end user, out to the, the customer or the business. And that's the context that we're using it as well. So it would allow multiple users, multiple businesses to share a single fiber link to the uh, quantum network. I mean, I'm doing this interview over Skype, which is all going through optical fibers. I mean, is there no way that those two-way signals would destroy the quantum states in the signals that you're trying to send? We haven't done that in this work, but um, actually that's something that we've done in a previous work. We've shown that using different wavelengths, we can send uh, data and uh, quantum signals on fiber at the same time. And provided that we can filter our uh, single photon signals, then we can extract them out of the, uh, the other light, which is on the fiber, which of course is many, many orders of magnitude stronger than the single photon signals. Uh, and from a kind of societal point of view, I mean, the sharing of secrets and the, the issue of privacy is very topical at the moment. Uh, are you saying that one day everyone may be capable of sending messages that can't be listened to? 
yes, eventually. It might um, allow everyone to encrypt their communication. Andrew Shields talking to Jeff Marsh. Soon we'll be finding out if brain training games can make players better at multitasking. But first, here are the research highlights read by Marion Turner. The planet Uranus has a companion. Scientists have spotted a 60-kilometre-wide object that shares Uranus's orbit, sitting just in front of the planet as they travel together around the Sun. So-called Trojan objects like this usually wander around the outer solar system alone, but occasionally they become temporarily trapped in the orbit of a large planet. Uranus's travel buddy is set to stay with it for three million years before resuming its solo wanderings at the fringes of the solar system. Read the paper in the journal Science. Have you ever wondered what lab mice get up to after dark? Scientists had assumed that they mostly hang out alone or in pairs. But a new study suggests that they're more sociable than that. A team in Israel painted their mice with fluorescent colours, which allowed cameras to track each mouse's movements overnight. They found that in their standard lab environment, the mice mostly interacted in groups of three. The study suggests that mice raised in the lab are more sociable than those raised in larger groups and more complex enclosures. Read that study in eLife. There's plenty of debate about the advantages and disadvantages of video games played by young people. But what about the over 60s? Can video games give ageing brains a boost? Kerry Smith's been finding out. I'm dangerous here. This is, I'm a menace to society here. You get a a lot more practice. You'll be relieved to know that this man isn't driving a real car on a real road. He's a volunteer in a study of a brain training game, computer games that say they can enhance your memory, attention, multitasking and a range of other skills. There are plenty of these games around, but evidence for whether they work is not so plentiful. Here's Peter Snyder from Brown University in Rhode Island. Well, I have to say that up until this point, the evidence has been rather weak. The studies published have shown very, very low uh, effect sizes, which is a measure of the potential clinical effectiveness of an intervention in creating a, conferring a benefit for one group over another. And I have been summarily unimpressed by this literature. Luckily for our driver, he's playing a game that does seem to boost cognitive skill. It's called NeuroRacer, and it's been specially developed by a team from the University of California, San Francisco, led by researcher Adam Ghazali. The first uh, segment of this project was really a development goal to build 3D video games with uh, friends of mine who happen to be professionals in the video game industry and were willing to work with our lab to create this. Um, And the goal of the game was to challenge cognitive control abilities in older adults by placing them in this immersive, multitasking and distracting environment. The game has two components. You're trying to drive or navigate a car uh, in this 3D world using a joystick in one of the tasks. And the road turns and bends and hills come, so you have to move the joystick in all dimensions to maintain your speed and position on the road. While also recognising and reacting to signs floating above the road. You have to respond to signs as rapidly and accurately as possible, but only to the target sign. So, for example, a green circle, but not a red circle, or a green pentagon. You do both of those tasks at the same time, 
and the tasks keep getting more difficult, but you only get rewarded on the game if both tasks improve. That's to stop players concentrating on one task at the expense of the other. It looks like a pretty hectic experience, and the team definitely saw an improvement in the broad cognitive skills of their volunteers. We can see that using a measure uh, that we call multitasking cost, which is how much your performance drops when you do the two tasks at once versus just one task alone. Older adults who've trained on this game for 12 hours uh, over the course of a month, those are in one hour uh, a day sessions three times a week, that they improved uh, this ability to multitask on the game dramatically, um, going from a 65% cost to a 16% cost after training. Um, and these gains even exceeded the level of the group um, of healthy 20-year-olds that only did it on a single visit. The benefits also lasted a few months, and perhaps what sets NeuroRacer apart from other training regimes that have been tried in the past is that the skills being trained are pretty specific. Here's Adam Hampshire, a neuroscientist at Imperial College London. The angle they're taking in their research is exactly what people should be doing. If we're ever going to get cognitive training to work, then it's quite likely going to be necessary that we, we target specific abilities and thereby target specific systems in the brain. But how exactly might this game be changing brain activity for the better? The authors say it boosts cognitive control, how the brain doles out its resources to various tasks. But the exact mechanism is still unclear. Here's Adam Hampshire. I don't think they have evidence that can relate the improvements that they found to uh, specific regions of the brain. And the reason I say that is they only looked at brain activity on the task that was actually trained or at least as far as I can tell from, from having read through, I think to be able to infer that there was a brain region that somehow related to improvements on other tasks, they'd have to actually look at changes in brain activity whilst performing those other tasks, the, the, the transfer task. It's also not clear yet whether the benefits transfer to everyday life. Peter Snyder again. Would this generalize to enhanced performance in the workplace for older adults who are still gainfully employed? Would it mean that it is easier to navigate a, a complicated subway system that they had not seen before? That kind of generalization, we, we haven't found that yet. Both Snyder and Hampshire would like to see the study's findings reproduced in other labs. But Snyder, for one, is certainly impressed enough to want to try the game himself. I'd love a copy of NeuroRacer, and I'm, I'm also uh, providing this interview outside my house so my 10-year-old son doesn't hear me talk too much about the benefits of playing uh, computer games. Peter Snyder, and before him, Adam Hampshire at Imperial College London, and study author Adam Ghazali from UCSF. Thanks, Kerry. You can see NeuroRacer in action on the Nature Video YouTube channel. News time now, and welcome to Nature's new chief news editor, David Ray. Hi, David. Hi, Charlotte. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're all waiting for the next big report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But in the meantime, there's been another announcement on climate change. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a great story this week, and I think the news broke out on Monday that um, a group of regional body in the Himalayas, the ICIMOD it's called, they're going to be putting together their own mini version of the IPCC report, which is going to be a three-year benchmarking exercise done 
across the Himalayas uh, because it's a particularly sensitive part of the world as far as climate change is concerned. I think, as are all high mountains, it supports about a fifth of the global population, the waters that run down from the Himalayas. It's a big sort of part of the, of the world population and also a part of the climate change difficulties. So they're going to be looking at this. They're going to come up in three years' time with a list of recommendations about what they can do, uh, tackling in, in particular the sort of issues that people in places like Nepal and, of course, down in the, in the sort of River Delta's face, which is against flooding, against um, drought and uh, increasing productive grazing. And, of course, as well as the sort of uh, pollution, environmental degradation and stopping disasters that are are happening all the time up there. Why do they feel the need to do their own report? Aren't the Himalayas covered in the IPCC report? Absolutely. But, I mean, you could almost call it an ecosystem of itself. And uh, as I sort of said, the high mountains are particularly sensitive to climate change. And I think because of the... The, the sort of network of people who are supported by the Himalayas, these I think they've quite rightly identified it, and they, they suffer unique difficulties that aren't seen elsewhere in the world. I mean, you wouldn't get the same sort of problems in the Alps, for example, and, uh, and certainly they don't support as big a um, population. So I, I think they've sort of gone in on this because it, there is a huge increase in the amount of flooding. Thousands are being people are being killed every year, including just earlier this year, there was about 6,000 people killed in uh, in Nepal, western Nepal, because of flooding. And that then went on down through India and, and caused similar difficulties down there. And you don't get that kind of mass flooding elsewhere in the world. It is very much the subcontinent and, and Southeast Asia where it tends to happen. So uh, I think they've, they've likely identified a sort of uh, climate change hotspot, if you like, uh, no pun intended. And when can we expect to see that report? Just remind us. Well, I mean, as ever with these things, I'm sure the IPCC report is is not exactly uh, on time. It's certainly a bit overdue. So this one is going to be at the end of 2016, they've told us, which is, yeah, give or take three years from now. But I'm sure there'll be a bit of leeway on that. They've got an enormous amount of work to do. And uh, we shouldn't forget as well, it's a third world backed body that's doing this report. So, you know, they're not hugely f- flush with cash. So, um, yeah, let, let's let's wait and see. Okay, well, we will indeed wait and see. Um, Next is a story that we've been following uh, for a number of years now, ever since the uh, terrible tsunami in Japan, and that's the Fukushima power plant. What's happened recently? Hmm. Well, interesting developments over the last week, and certainly today, actually. I mean, I think, as everyone knows, they haven't been able to to sort of... uh, make this place watertight at all and there's leaks coming into the plant there's leaks going of, of contaminated radioactive water going into the pacific ocean uh, there's enormous pressure on the the people who who work at the plant and also the japanese government to try and sort this out lots of general worry then about leaking of this contaminated water but then last week there was a particularly bad leak wasn't there yeah absolutely i mean 300 tons of uh, of contaminated radioactive water is, is bad news in anyone's book i think and and that's exactly what happened and the, the japanese government sort of assessed it and then ended up a couple of days ago upgrading it from level one on the, the sort of international scale of, of nuclear accidents, which is a scale of one to seven, up to level three, which is the most serious nuclear accident that has happened in the world since the, the original Fukushima sort of meltdown back in what, March 2011. And uh, why are we so worried about water contaminated with uh, radioactivity? What exactly are the dangers? Well, the big danger, obviously, uh, to the earth and the fact that it won't go away for a hell of a long time, which means you can't do anything with that contaminated land. But because of uh, sort of Fukushima's sighting, 50 metres away from the, from the sea, or the Pacific Ocean, a lot of this water is expected to or already has leaked into the ocean. 
and the sort of dangers for fishermen. There's no commercial fishing allowed at the moment because of the sort of contamination. And uh, what's the latest news? What, what came out on Monday? So the, in Japan, that they've been sort of struggling to, to find out a way of stopping these leaks, or if not stopping the leaks, stopping the leaks getting out of the, the site or the facility. Uh, and the, the latest idea that was sort of mooted a couple of weeks ago is to, to create an ice wall. So you freeze the earth on, on, around the site, and that stops water moving, moving past it. And that's done by putting pipes underground and this kind of thing. Uh, I mean, it's never been used before, so whether it'll work is a bit of a different kettle of fish. But the government in Japan announced that it would actually do something about this on Tuesday, the 3rd of September, uh, and, and are going to throw a lot of money at it. So who knows, it might actually, something might work this time, something might start going right at Fukushima. All right. Uh, thanks very much, David. And as always, if you'd like to read more on those stories, go to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with a story about a spying herpetologist. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. Stoddart.